content of this program is intended for people who are blind and print impaired. Hello there and welcome to our October 2021 edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately? A program from the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. This program is brought to you by the Friends of the North Carolina Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, an organization of citizens, volunteers, and patrons all interested in supporting the library and the services it provides. The Friends Group was founded in 1989 and now has more than 300 members across North Carolina. If you'd like to join the Friends Group yourself, we'll have information on how to do that later in the program. This program is all about books with special emphasis on those available from the North Carolina Library for the Blind. The library has more than 86,000 titles in its collection. Books and magazines are available in large print, braille, and talking books as well. The library has more than 11,000 patrons across the state. And if you're not a patron but are interested in becoming one, I'll have more information at the end of this program. This month, we will take a look at some of the most popular books checked out in the month of September at the North Carolina Library for the Blind. Thank you again for joining me today. Our first book is entitled Now and Then and Always by Melissa Tagg. And this is the first book in a series called the Maple Valley Series. And this book, by the way, is a 2020 Christie Award winner. It uh, was called by a New York Times uh, critic as a heartbreakingly beautiful romance, truly a story that will capture your heart. Here is the plot. Last year, after traumatic circumstances forced her from her job as a nanny, Mara Bristol finally found a place to belong, the winsome Everwood Bed and Breakfast at the edge of Maple Valley, Iowa. For months, she helped its owner, Lenora, maintain the ramshackle property despite their shortage of guests. But when Lenora fails to return from a month-long trip and the bank threatens foreclosure, Mara worries she's once again alone, abandoned, about to lose the only true home she's ever known. Detective Marshall Hawkins is no closer to hold today, no closer to hold today than he was two years ago, the day his daughter died. Between his divorce, debilitating migraines, and a dependence on medication, his life is falling apart. And when a reckless decision on the job propels him into administrative leave, he has no other plan but to get in his truck and drive. A one-night stay at the Everwood was supposed to be just that. But there's something about the old house, or maybe it's intriguing caretaker, that pulls him in. Together, Mara and Marshall set out to save the Everwood. But its secrets run deeper than they could have imagined. As they renovate the house and search for its missing owner. They'll each confront the pain that brought them to the Everwood in the first place, and just may discover a faith and love to help them carry on. Again, that's the 2020 Christie Award winner book entitled Now and Then and Always by Melissa Tagg. 
The next most popular book on the list of books that uh, went out the door from the North Carolina Library for the Blind this past month, the month of September, is a book entitled The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. It was written by Anna Malika Tubbs. This is quite a long summary, but I think uh, I think this book, book is worth it, so bear with me here. Birdist Baldwin, Louise Little, and Alberta King. The percentage of Americans who might recognize these names is approximately zero. But their lives, struggles, and accomplishments are every bit as important as those of the people we generally acknowledge as American heroes. And that is why Anna Malika Tubbs' detailed account of their lives is so significant and timely. Her study, The Three Mothers, shines a brilliant light on the influence that these three women exerted in the lives of their sons, James Baldwin, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King, Jr. Tubbs powerfully demonstrates that the importance of these mothers has been grossly overlooked and undervalued by this for the same reasons that the plights of black Americans, women in general, and black women in particular, have been buried or denied. A history of oppression, humiliation, and degradation of people of color has plagued this country since its inception. All three women suffered the same indignities as their black male contemporaries, though their individual stories vary in terms of environment and ancestry. But the crux of each of their stories is both depressingly and inspiringly similar. Each of them married men whose personal flaws placed the brunt of the raising and education of their children on the women themselves. Of the three... Alberta King had the happiest and most productive childhood. Her parents were admired and widely respected clergy people. They were instrumental in the growth of the influential Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and Alberta was given and proudly accepted the responsibility and mission to maintain the church's heritage and traditions. She was brilliant and musically gifted and was an exceptionally capable teacher and organizer. When she met her husband, Michael King, he was very much a product of his rural background, shy, relatively uneducated, and naive. But they fell in love, and Alberta encouraged and prodded him to continue his formal education and develop the self-discipline and willpower that eventually would result in his leadership role at Ebenezer Baptist. But it was Alberta who took and held the reins in raising and educating their children, instilling the ideas and ideals of Christianity that was the foundation of their overarching moral values and their insistence on carrying on the struggle for equality. Their son, Michael Jr., inherited those qualities as well as those talents from his mother. The young man was also brilliant and poetic, and he too was a powerful influence on those around him. 
When his grandfather Martin King died, Michael Sr. decided that in his father's honor, he would change his name and his son's name to Martin. Thus was born Martin Luther King, Jr. Like the other two mothers who are the subjects of this book, Alberta outlived her son. Though ironically, she was assassinated in 1974 by a crazed individual while she played the organ at a church service. But her brilliance, character, and influence should never again be overlooked. Burtist Baldwin's young womanhood was startlingly different from Alberta's. She had spent her early years living in poverty on Deal Island in Maryland. Her father was a seaman, and she spent many hours on the water with him as he worked. Eventually, the unusually creative young woman felt constrained by the limited opportunities on the island, and she made her way to Philadelphia and then New York, searching for the variety and excitement of a different kind of life. It was the 1920s, the era of the Harlem Renaissance. She loved it. Harlem's vitality matched her own, and she was taken by the intellectual spirit of the place and the time. Unfortunately, but inevitably, she was lonely and poverty-stricken. When she met a man to whom she was attracted, she had an affair with him, and the result was the birth of her first child, James. Later, Burtis married a man named David Baldwin and had eight more children, but James always remained her pride and joy. David, however, hated and abused James. He was an absurdly rigid Pentecostal preacher, an angry, frustrated man who simply could not abide the realities of the cruel white supremacy that haunted him. He sank ever more deeply into severe depression and ultimately became a totally broken man, mentally and emotionally. But Burtis persisted and survived. Against all odds, she miraculously maintained her openness, warmth, kindness, and devotion to her children. She opened James' path to literary greatness and fame, and remained his rock and his comfort until the day he died. She was his muse and his inspiration, the primary reason for his phenomenal success as an essayist, poet, novelist, playwright, and civil rights activist. Louise Little's story is perhaps the most jarring and inspiring of the three biographies. Fighting the inevitable handicaps of bigotry and poverty, she, like Burtis, remained steadfastly true to her principles. She and her husband Earl were enthusiastic supporters of Marcus Garvey, a well-known but controversial fighter for equality and recognition of the evils of white supremacy. He was neither subtle nor gentle, and Louise and Earl were openly and loudly supportive of Garvey's radical opinions and actions. Earl died after their children were born, and it's likely he was murdered by white men who hated his entirely uninhibited condemnations of white people. He was crushed under the wheels of a streetcar, but Louise carried on. She taught her children everything she believed about their rights to real freedom and equality, and 
She recognized that those rights could not be won unless they were willing to fight to attain them. After her husband's death, Louise single-handedly fought off a KKK threat to attack her home and her family. Then, because she stubbornly insisted on raising her children by herself, all the while proclaiming the injustices of the white power structure, they were taken from her and she was institutionalized. They said she was crazy. Incredibly, she was held against her will in that alleged home hospital for 25 years. But she doggedly maintained her sanity and her fighting spirit until her children, who never gave up fighting for her release, were successful in bringing her back home. Meanwhile, her most troublemaking son had changed his religion religion to Islam and his name to Malcolm X, and he was assassinated shortly after Louise's homecoming. But before he died, he had advanced the cause that his mother had lived for, perhaps as effectively and certainly as valiantly as any American hero. Louise lived for 26 more years, fighting all the way. We must profusely thank Anna Malika Tubbs for bringing these heretofore untold stories of amazing women to our attention. It should have happened long ago. I would be remiss, the reviewer says, if I did not point out some flaws in the narrative that detract a bit from the power of the author's efforts. I lay the blame for these shortcomings squarely at the feet of her editors. The basic organizational structure of the work is questionable. Chapters jump almost randomly, it seems, from general contextual background information to sections specifically about the women's lives and then back again. There are also many instances of awkward sentence structures and ineffective word choices. And finally, the timelines are often confusing and occasionally incorrect. In one instance, for example, we read about the awful pictures of black people that appeared in magazines and other periodicals and books and on television in the 1920s and 30s before television was commercially available to the general public. However... We should not allow these flaws to interfere with or detract from our appreciation of Tubbs' work. She has brought to light the heroism of people whose lives have rarely been studied and presented to the public. Her book should be read and carefully considered and absorbed by every American who cares about equality, justice, and the inalienable rights of black women, black mothers, and all people of color. That uh, book review was written in March of this year by Jack Kramer. Again, that book is entitled The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. And that uh, book was written by Anna Malika Tubbs. you're listening to Heard Any Good Books Lately, a production of the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. Thanks for joining me today. That was a pretty long review, but I hope that uh, you enjoyed it. It sounds like a good book. Now we will lighten the mood a little bit with uh, a look at another popular book last month. It was called A Good Day for Chardonnay by Dorinda Jones. 
Here's the plot for this one. Running a small-town police force in the mountains of New Mexico should be a smooth, carefree kind of job. Sadly, full-time sheriff and even fuller-time coffee guzzler, Sunshine Vicram, that's V-I-C-R-A-M, didn't get that memo. All Sunshine really wants is one easygoing day. You know, the kind that starts off with coffee and a donut, or three, and ends with takeout pizza and a glass of Chardonnay, or seven. Turns out that's about as easy as switching to decaf. What kind of people do that, and who hurt them? Well, before she can say iced mocha latte, Sonny's got a bar fight gone bad. A teenage daughter hunting a serial killer, and, oh yes, the still unresolved mystery of her own abduction years prior. All evidence points to a local distiller, a dangerous bad boy named Levi Ravender. But Sun knows he's not the villain of her story. Still, perhaps beneath it all, he possesses the keys to her disappearance at the very least. Beneath it all, he possesses a serious set of abs. She's seen it once, accidentally. Oh, between policing a town her hunky chief deputy calls four cents short of a nickel, that pesky crush she has on Levi, which seems to grow exponentially every day, and an irascible raccoon that just doesn't know when to quit, Sonny's life is about to rocket to a whole new level of crazy. Yep, Definitely A Good Day for Chardonnay, and that's the title of that book, A Good Day for Chardonnay, written by Dorenda Jones. Now let's take a look at uh, a pretty interesting book called The Bohemians by Jasmine Darsnick. This is a dazzling novel of one of America's most celebrated photographers, Dorothea Lange, exploring the wild years in San Francisco that awakened her career-defining grit, compassion, and daring. Here is the plot. In 1918, a young and bright-eyed Dorothea Lang steps off the train in San Francisco where a disaster kickstarts a new life. Her friendship with Caroline Lee, a vivacious, straight-talking Chinese-American with a complicated past, gives Dorothea entree into Monkey Block, an artist colony and the bohemian heart of the city. Dazzled by Caroline and her friends, Dorothea is catapulted into a heady new world of freedom, art, and politics. She also finds herself unexpectedly falling in love with the brilliant but troubled painter Maynard Dixon. Dorothea and Caroline eventually create a flourishing portrait studio, but a devastating betrayal pushes their friendship to the breaking point and alters the course of their lives. The Bohemians captures a glittering and gritty 1920s San Francisco with a cast of unforgettable characters, including cameos from such legendary figures as Mabel Dodge Luhan, Frida Kahlo, Ansel Adams, and D.H. Lawrence. A vivid and absorbing portrait of the past, The Bohemians, shows how the gift of friendship and the possibility of self-invention persist against the ferocious pull of history. As Dorothea sheds her innocence, her purpose is awakened 
and she grows into the figure we know from history, the artist whose iconic Depression-era photographs, like Migrant Mother, broke the hearts and opened the eyes of a nation. Again, the book is called The Bohemians, and it's by Jasmine Darznick. Next, let's take a look at a book called A Reluctant Bride, an Amish of Birch Creek novel by Kathleen Fuller. She never wanted to marry. He hopes to make amends for past wrongs. Can love find a way to heal both of their hearts? Sadie Schrock swore she would never marry. All of her other Amish friends could court and marry. She was content to manage the family business and eventually take it over when her parents are ready to retire. But all of that changes when a reckless driver kills both of her parents and seriously injures her younger sister. With mounting hospital bills adding to the pile of debt her parents left behind, Sadie is left with no choice she must marry, and not just any man, the man who saw her at her weakest and walked away. Aidan knows what his brother did to Sadie years ago was inexcusable, and every day since that incident, Aidan has lived with the guilt for not intervening sooner. When he is faced with the chance to protect Sadie once again, he can't let her down, even if it means living with the scorn of the woman he loves for the rest of his life. Working alongside Aidan at the store, Sadie realizes he isn't the same boy who once betrayed her. Just when Sadie starts to let her guard down and perhaps develop feelings for her new husband, dangerous secrets are revealed. Now everything Sadie has worked so hard to protect is threatened, and she must find a way to save her family and herself. Again, the book is entitled A Reluctant Bride, an Amish of Birch Creek Novel by Kathleen Fuller. Now here's a good timely book, especially with Halloween just around the corner. It's called In the Shadow of Edgar Allan Poe, Classic Tales of Horror, 1816 to 1914. And this is written by Leslie L. Klinger a masterful collection of horror fiction by widely acclaimed authors whose contributions to the genre have been lost in the shadow of Edgar Allan Poe by one of America's foremost anthologists. Edgar Allan Poe did not invent the tale of terror. There were American, English, and Continental writers who preceded Poe and influenced his work. Similarly, there were many who were in turn influenced by Poe's genius, and produce their own popular tales of supernatural literature. This collection features masterful tales of terror by authors who, by and large, are little remembered for their writing in this genre. Even Bram Stoker, whose Dracula may be said to be the most popular horror novel of all time, is not known as a writer of short fiction. Distinguished editor Leslie S. Klinger is a world-renowned authority on those twin icons of the Victorian age, Sherlock Holmes and Dracula. His studies into the forefathers of those giants led him to a broader fascination with writers of supernatural literature of the 19th century. 
The stories in this collection have been selected by him for their impact. Each is preceded by a brief biography of the author and an overview of his or her literary career, and is annotated to explain obscure references. Read on now, perhaps with a flickering candle or a flashlight at hand. Some of the stories in this book, by the way, are by Ambrose Bierce, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, Theodore Gautier, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Arthur Conan Doyle, Lafasadio Hearn, M. R. James, Bram Stoker, and many others. It sounds like good Halloween reading to me. It's called In the Shadow of Edgar Allan Poe, Classic Tales of Horror, from 1816 to 1914, compiled by Leslie S. Klinger. Now, one more popular book from the North Carolina Library for the Blind this past month of September. This one is entitled Survival of the Fritters by Ginger Bolton. Here's the plot for this one. Emily Westhill runs the best donut shop in Fallingbrook, Wisconsin, alongside her retired police chief, father-in-law, and her tabby deputy donut. But after murder claims a favorite customer, Emily can't rely on a sidekick to solve the crime or stay alive. If Emily has learned anything from her past as a 911 operator... It's to stay calm during stressful situations. But that's a tall order when one of her regulars, Georgia Treater, goes missing. Georgia never skips morning cappuccinos with her knitting circle. Her pals fear the worst, especially Lois, a close friend who recently moved to town. As evening creeps in, Emily and the ladies search for Georgia at home, and they find her murdered among a scattering of stale donuts. Disturbingly, George's demise coincides with the five-year anniversary of her son's murder, a case Emily's late detective husband failed to solve before his own sudden death. With Lois hiding secrets and an innocent man's life at stake, Emily's forced to revisit painful memories on her quest for answers. Though someone's alibi is full of holes, only a sprinkling of clues have been left behind. And if Emily can't trace them back to a killer in time, her donut shop will end up permanently closed for business. Again, that book is called The Survival of the Fritters, and it's by Ginger Bolton. That is just about all the time we have for this month's edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately. I'm George Douglas. I hope you enjoyed the program today. If you'd like more information about how to become a patron of the North Carolina Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, simply Google or search for North Carolina Library for the Blind. Or you can call toll-free at 888-388-2460. I'll give you that number one more time. 
You can also use those same numbers and website to join the Friends of the North Carolina Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. It is that wonderful organization that sponsors this monthly feature on books. And if you have not considered becoming a patron of the North Carolina Library for the Blind, I really encourage you to do that. The benefits are wonderful. The choices are incredible as far as the books are available and large print books are delivered to you uh, in a bag with no postage. And that's the way you send it back when you're, when you're finished with the book. So um, do check it out. This program is intended for people who are blind or print impaired. Heard Any Good Books Lately will be available right after the broadcast at our website, ncreadingservice.org. So long until next time. Thank you.